Welcome to Filmstrip, movie reviews presented by Continuous Play Podcast. These podcasts are spoiler-filled as we discuss the plots, characters, and themes of the films in review. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17. Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Jay. I'm Brian. And I'm Ron. And this is our review of Scream, starring Nev Campbell, Rose McGowan, David Arquette, Courtney Cox, Skeet Ulrich, Matthew Lillard, Jamie Kennedy, and Drew Barrymore. Written by Kevin Williamson and directed by Wes Craven, released in 1996 on a budget of $17 million, grossed over $173 million at the box office, and reignited the slasher horror craze for about a decade. And... Uh, Boy, am I excited to be here to talk about the Scream series. We've been kicking this one around for a number of years behind the scenes. Brian, I think you and I mentioned it many moons ago back in the Art of Slaying days. And we, mm-hmm. you know, we, matter of fact, we had done one of the I Know What You Did Last Summers, but never got to Scream until now because I, I sort of felt like we needed to do some of the other staple franchises. Like we had done Hellraiser at that point, but we needed to do Halloween, Friday the 13th, Nightmare on Elm Street. So we've done those now and Scream seems like a good place to, to do. It's, you know, it's a four part series that we can put in here in late spring, early summer and, uh, you know, get the band back together here to talk about some slasher horror stuff. So I want to ask you to your memories of seeing this. Did you see it when it came out? All that kind of stuff. So Brian, what about you? Well, I, I don't get a lot around to movies very often, so I don't get to see a lot of them in the theater, but I do remember when this came out on, on, uh, well, back then VHS for me, I picked it up and we rented it, uh, right away. And just something that I heard was really good. It had, um, Courtney Cox, who was big with friends at the time, and my wife was a huge friends person. And so we just decided to go out and, f- and find it. And that's really, how I saw the thing and then we liked it. So we waited for the next ones to come out and, and kept following the series up until the fourth most recent one, which I still have yet to see. So that'll be fun. <laughs> All right, Ron, what about you? Oh um, yeah. I didn't see it in the theaters. Um, it was a VHS rental uh, that me and my family watched over at my uncle's house. Cause he was the only person we knew that had a big screen TV back in 1996 or whatever. What was, was that like a 32 incher back then? So, oh no, he had like an actual like uh, like 50 inch TV. Oh wow! But it was one of those one of those ones that was about two feet thick. <laughs> okay, yeah, we had one of those too. Actually, we had a big. Uh, I think it was a 55 inch TV, but it was massive and yeah, I heavy. Bet the, I bet those things weighed like 200 pounds. So. <laughs> <laughs> they were heavy. <laughs> that's that's awesome. I had just about given up completely on horror movies at this point. I mean, I, I talked about it on previous shows that I saw that six Halloween in a dollar theater. And at that point I, I knew I was like, slashers are just dead. Like I, you know, I was getting into other things at that point and I, I wasn't really going to see things that much. And I was dating somebody at the time who, you know, this came out in, in December of 96. So right before winter break. And I'm like, I don't know, is that worth seeing? I mean, I, I watched a little bit of party of five. I knew who some of the people were, but I wasn't, a huge fan of any of them. I thought Wes Craven, I don't know. You know, he's kind of, I didn't really 
seen him do much that I was just real jazzed about in a long time. And my, again, the person I was dating at the time was just like, absolutely not, not interested at all. So over holiday break, while she's out of town or whatever, right before it goes out of the theaters in our, in our town, I'm thinking, you know what? I'll, I'll just go see it. I think I saw it for like four bucks or something like that. And I remember being really like, was surprised by it. I'm like, man, that was a lot better than I thought it was going to be. I had it on VHS as well. I've owned it on DVD for a number of years. And I've seen it several times, but this is the first time I've gone back to it in a few years now. And I remember so much about the the impact that it had at the time on pop culture, but also how like thick and chock full of those kind of references it was. I mean, this launched Kevin Williamson into the next stratosphere. Dawson's Creek is a direct result of this. Halloween H2O, H2O got you know pushed ahead because of this. A lot of other things happened because of Scream. And I mean, look, it made it made some of the people in this bona fide young up and coming movie stars at that point. Yeah, I was just thinking as as. Um you were going through the introduction that this is a veritable who's who of the next big thing circa 1996 <laughs> and, none, and basically none of them happened. <laughs> well, I wouldn't say none of them happened. Well, Courtney Cox was already famous. I mean, who's the, I mean, sure. David Arquette is a WCW world heavyweight champion, but other <laughs> than that, not, there you go. That's let's, something. <laughs> let's not that we, we've done an Arquette before, by the way, ready to roll. Yeah, yeah. Let's the not remember that. <laughs> I would say Rose McGowan took off after this too for quite a while, but you know, she didn't last forever, but she, she had a few things. They tried to push Nev. I, you know, she did some stuff. I don't think any of it ever took, you know, but I, it's a funny thing when you watch a movie that like tries to mint people, you know, that makes them the next thing. And then the ones that actually make it and the ones that don't Skeet Ulrich and Matthew, I only know Matthew Lillard because he seems to be in Freddie Prinze movies. You know, because they're friends. Yeah, that's true. So, <laughs> Scooby Dooby Doo. I mean, Doo. He's, yeah, he's the only guy who's got like a steady career as Shaggy. Uh, <laughs> if there wasn't a guy born for a role, by the way, if you, if y'all haven't seen the Scooby movies, I mean, he is perfect for that. He's he's like a living uh, Shaggy. I I thought of him at the time as like the. The TV version of Jim Carrey, you know, long, lanky, goofy, weird faces can kind of switch on and off. Jamie Kennedy, you could argue too, had a has had a pretty you know steady career uh, in the last twenty one years. <laughs> well, and look, <laughs> Drew Barrymore. I mean, at the time, like she was coming out of rehab and was sort of the poster child for Hollywood child star gone wrong. This is what really put her back into the mainstream again. And I mean, she's had an incredible career since, and you know, producing and a big player in Hollywood. And this this was the one that kind of got her out of the out of the dumpster fire that she was in to do the what amounts to the psycho cameo in in the movie. Yeah, that's pretty. That, uh, yeah, I guess that's fair. Maybe I'm too harsh on this movie and all the people involved. I think. I think uh, looking back now, we don't see a whole lot of these people in anything these days. But they had decent runs for a while in certain things. I mean, Neff Campbell really, to me, has always been a TV actress. Yeah, more so than a movie actress. And Rose McGowan did quite a few things, even as recently as the uh, Sin City stuff. 
But um, her, to me, always, again, a TV actress, she went on to do the Charmed stuff for a couple of years. Yeah, she um, did she replace Doherty on she, that show? She or? did. She okay. replaced Shannon Doherty as the third, the half-sister or something like that. Um, <laughs> Courtney Cox, you know, she was always big with friends and, and whatnot, and she's done a few things. She's actually reinvented herself with that Cougar Town show for a while. I think that's run its course, but... Um, She's still in the mainstream. David Arquette is David Arquette. I mean, he shows up in weird <laughs> spots. Yeah. But he's there. He kind of he kind of grew off the coattails of Courtney Cox too though. <laughs> I he's, he's like yeah. He's like the poor he's like the poor man's Crispin Glover. Well, that's a good mm-hmm. comparison. Yeah. He he really is. Like he, he comes from <laughs> and Skeet Ulrich is certainly doing a good Johnny Depp impression in this because I mean they they so want him to be Depp. I, I think that's Wes Craven trying to reach out to Deb at that point going I'm, I'm just gonna do one just like you Johnny but because uh, he certainly plays a lot like that but I've seen him in stuff but he tends to like pick like really weird stuff to do like I think he's really picky about what he likes but you guys have hit on it a lot of these folks came out of television and they they were in a time when television wasn't the thing that you know serious stars wanted to do nowadays like if you're a uh, hollywood star you want a good television show because you're more likely going to get something that's more critically acclaimed you have better you know parts you can make the same money lots of money yeah Yeah. exactly and you have longevity whereas you you may get one good film even if you're in a franchise and then it starts tanking you know so um but this was different, and moreover, again, I can't emphasize enough like how dead slasher horror movies were, and really horror movies in general. I mean, I, I've always had a soft spot for them, but even then, there was nothing that anybody put any money in. I mean, uh, it, you know, Dimension here with the wine scenes behind it, $17 million was nothing in 1996 for a movie. I mean, that, that was cheap. And it, now, I mean, back in those days, if you got 15 to 20 million out of a slasher movie, I mean, that's what go back and look through our archives. That's what most of them were making. You had a good one. You know, the fact that this thing made one hundred and seventy three million dollars tells you that it had staying power for a long time and really connected with a lot of people. I mean, it did, it did spawn three sequels so. and a television show. I think the fact that it kind of poked fun at horror movies was the big deal. Yeah, and we're going to talk about that. I mean, certainly the the whole motif of this is different. And, yeah, I guess we should say now this also spawned a television series, which is on MTV now. And we're not going to be reviewing that. But, Ron, I know you you watch those and have done some written reviews of those. Your wife does, too, right? Yeah, Holly did uh, the first season and I think part of the second season. And it's actually pretty good. Yeah, it's it's a good MTV horror anthology. It's almost like MTV's version of, it's more like MTV's version of like Twin Peaks. Yeah, that's a good way to say it. I, I got into watching that too. And it's, I mean, it's incredibly gory and it follows a lot of the same motif with also being very millennial in this generation. But I do find it fun to watch. We're not, again, we're not going to get into too much of that. We'll stick to the movies here, but I think, if you're listening to this podcast and like you don't know what Scream's about, I you know spoiler warning I guess at this point, but uh, <laughs> we're gonna go ahead and do the plot summary. But I think most people are gonna know what this is. But I, I venture to guess just based on some teaser stuff I threw out on Facebook, it's been a long time since people have watched this one. So Ron, why don't you jog everybody's memory? Give us a quick and dirty on what this first Scream movie's all about. 
Woodsboro High School student Sydney Prescott is still getting over her mother's brutal murder from a year prior, where she was the star witness in the trial that sent local Cotton Weary to prison for the crime. As the morbid anniversary approaches, two classmates are killed and the town is gripped with fear. As tabloid journalist Gail Weathers posits her theory that Sydney fingered the wrong person and the killer remains at large. When a town curfew is instituted, many of Sydney's friends party at remote at a remote house for the killer strikes again, with Gail and Deputy Dewey Riley in pursuit. It turns out Gail was right all along. The real killer, or killers in this case, are Sydney's boyfriend Billy Loomis and his best friend Stu. Billy's dad had an affair with Sydney's mom, causing his parents to break up. Stu, for no other reason than just to do it, went along with Billy on the initial killing and helped frame Cotton Weary. They even kidnapped Sydney's dad this year to make it look like he was the killer and they were the heroes. However, Sydney, along with help from Gail, turned the tables on the two and eventually both are vanquished. Sydney's dad is saved and Gail gets her story as credits roll. All right, that's a good tight plot summary. And I want to start with something not where the movie starts, but something that we started with in that summary there. The fact that we're at a year anniversary of her mother's murder and the the trial of the you know century or whatever in this town or guys in 1996, like, I know that's a trope for television, but I think at that point we were all hip to the fact that it takes a lot longer than inside of a year to <laughs> execute a murder trial. OJ didn't go on trial that fast. You know, and we had all seen that unfold. I, I'm, and I'm such a true crime buff now. Like that just stuck out to me watching this. I'm like, shouldn't it be like in the middle of the trial at this point? Like it takes forever to get all of that kind of evidence together. And even if you have a quick confession, it takes a long time to get through the court docket. I just, I don't know. It stuck out to me again. Maybe it's modern sensibilities. I bought it at the time, but I wanted to see if, if either of those things rung in your heads too, or if it's, if it's just me being an old dude that thinks way too much about this stuff. I would say that uh, it depends on how big this Woodsboro community is if it's a really small town and they they can move a little faster through justice i don't know but um it depends on how high profile the case is who knows sydney's mom is she really that big of a deal it may be the crime of the century in woodsboro but everyone else in the state doesn't give a rip you know it all depends on that well uh when i was in college we had a guy who killed his uh dad and stepmom and, and I actually knew the guy a little bit, but um, he his trial was over in like a year, probably. But this is a town of about uh, two or three thousand people. So, okay, that's that's so, fair. The, the wheels of justice um, crush faster when there's no like. Drunk there's not as many through. crimes to prosecute. Yeah. Yeah, this is supposed to be in Northern California, I think, but not like too Northern California, but not L.A., you know, like I, this is any town, America, California, but not a big place, like definitely white bread suburbia is where this is that you know, the Woodsboro, obviously a fake place, but I sort of took it as 
I don't know, maybe the size of that town where um, Laurie Strode went and hung out to be a fake teacher for a few years, or like Sunnydale. You know, we don't we don't have a lot of town, but it's over here but without the Hellmouth, obviously. So there's not a lot of people. I th- and so you guys bring up a good point. Maybe in that town, there's not that much to do. They seem to, I mean, the police force here, this is the other thing. They're oddly enough efficient. Like they seem to blow through evidence and investigate LUDs on cell phones and all that stuff really quick, especially for the nineties. So I, I guess we could we can put that. Probably there. don't just, have a lot to do. Yeah, that, I'm with. I think you're right. I mean, we we meet um, deputy of deputy duty, of course, but we spend some time with the sheriff too, and we see that there are other deputies. So they have enough to have four or five people in a police force. I mean, they it's not just two people. It's not Barney and Andy, but. I guess they have enough. I, I just, it just sort of hit me. I thought, can you do that inside of a year? I guess it would. But anyway, we open up though, man. I think this is the, the thing. If anybody remembers anything about this movie, besides the ghost face mask and all that stuff, I think it's this opening, right? The girl in the house alone getting the phone call and it's the wrong number. And then he calls back and the whole taunting and back and forth. And it's, it's replaying. The scene from the first act of When a Stranger Calls, if either of you have seen that, Anna and I reviewed that years ago, and I I think this movie, again, is being really self-referential with itself. I mean, you get a Friday the 13th drop, a Halloween, you get a joke at the Nightmare on Elm Street series in this, but a lot of it is stemming from that When a Stranger Calls. This opening scene still works in spite of the fact that the technology dates it so badly. Not only do you remember having a house line, guys, remember cordless telephones? They were the bomb. And oh, they yeah. were just, they just get started around that time in households, you know? Yeah, I, remember, I think my family had that phone. Like, I remember, I, that, was also, that was also the one Paul Heyman used to carry around to the ring, I think. No, Paul Heyman had a very different phone, but <laughs> <laughs> uh, I I remember, shit, we got our first cordless phone probably when I was in high school, so that would be right around this time. I remember in middle school having to sit in the middle of the hallways with the long telephone cord run up as far as I could get so people couldn't hear my conversations. <laughs> so uh, cordless <laughs> phones were fairly new at this point. Yeah, we were fairly early adopters of the cordless phone, but uh, yeah, it was still we had one cordless phone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think it's that's neat that and the Jiffy Pop on the the stove. That's the one thing uh, that the I'm, Jiffy Pop. I, yeah, I remembered that, but like in 1996, I think we had graduated to microwave popcorn. And I know why it's theirs because you got to have the fire. At oh, some point, we you just, understand yeah. that that microwave popcorn was around. But there's those purists who don't want to use microwave popcorn. It's not the same. Well, and true. And also, who knew that Jiffy Pop had, like, kerosene in it? Because holy cow, that's a fire. (laughs) I mean, maybe the butter's that flammable. I've never tested it, but uh, it did make me Well, you cook anything for that long and it'll burn. Yeah, I guess so. I just, I wrote, watching it, it made me, like, it did the subliminal job. Like, it made me wish I had a little thing of Jiffy Pop in it. You know, I don't think I've ever had Jiffy Pop, but it made me think of, like, if you're cooking something on the grill and the grease catches fire on top of the aluminum foil and how it doesn't go out. Yes, yes. So maybe that's just what caught fire, like the butter is what was burning. 
Yeah, I, I think so. So I think it's funny that we are focusing so much on the peripheral here when what's happening is it's a one-person monologue performance for 99% of it. I mean, they had the voice actor off-screen doing the lines with her and stuff, but mostly this is Drew on that phone doing the back and forth. And I got to tell you, I think the scene works so well because it's it's balanced enough to where it starts off kind of weird and then it's funny and then it's creepy and then it really gets creepy with that whole I want to know who I'm looking at thing. And then it really gets you know, sinister fast. And I, I think it still works so well, the cat and mouse that's being played here. It's, it's definitely the thing that, I mean, as, as we've talked about, it's the thing that everybody remembers from the movie. It's definitely like, this is like, this was Kevin Williams' elevator pitch for this movie. This was his uh, five-minute, this is what the movie's about um, pitch. It has to be because it, it, it works so well. It's it's super meta. It's scary. It's funny. It's got all the elements that go into the finished film just in a little, you know, we can show this to distributors kind of five-minute segment. And it's got a gory kill section in it, too, for both of these. Like, Steve gets, like, gutted on screen, which is, at the time, like, you didn't see that in horror movies. Like, that was a, a very gross and graphic shot for the two or three seconds it's on screen. Mm-hmm. Well, you did, but you didn't see it in, like, a big studio movie. Good point. Yeah, you're right. This wasn't the kind of thing that you would expect from the big studio movie. And I think that's one of the things that changed the game here, because this is years before we get Saw and Hostel and all that kind of stuff. So in reigniting its slasher craze for the nine or ten years that the Scream wave of slashers came out, one of the things they all have in common, besides being uber meta, are the ones that were rated R had a lot of blood and a lot of guts in them. Like there was a lot of, of gore and red flying across the screen here. Um, what's neat to watch about these movies and all the screen movies share this in common. They're all mysteries. It's all whodunits, right? But once you've seen it and the cat's out of the bag, rewatching it is all about for me watching to see, can I figure out who's where? And so I wanted to ask both of you, which, which one of our killers is where and doing what during this time? Oh, I have no idea. (laughs) Yeah. I don't think. Yeah. I would imagine it's Billy though on this part. I I think Sorry, go ahead. No, 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 you're good, go. It had been so long since I've seen it, I had forgotten which two of the bland white dudes were the murderers. <laughs> so for like half of it, I was like, all right, is that Skeet Ulrich? No, that's not Skeet Ulrich. Is that Jamie <laughs> Kennedy? Well, that's clearly Matthew Lillard, because he still looks like SLC Punk. But who's that other bland-looking cracker? <laughs> I think that's part of the fun in this. What I didn't realize until watching it and then doing a little behind-the-scenes look on this is how many times Ulrich and Lillard are actually in the costume. Like, they're doing the part, and anytime it's kind of the goofy, waving the arms around person, that's usually Matthew Lillard. (laughs) Which are basically like Shaggy as the thing. And in this one... And, I mean, there's a billion theories online, so I'm just going to give you my thoughts. I think Billy's on the phone here, and I think Matthew Lillard is the one doing the knife work because he's the one that kills Steve, goes around to the front, and then Billy's the one that throws the 
the chair through the glass door, which by the way, heck of a throw. I don't know if you guys have ever tried to break a sliding glass door, but you got to like have some help to get a chair, a deck chair through it on the first try. Like that didn't didn't work that way. (laughs) But I kind of, I I thought, you know, Lillard would have, was the one doing the killing too on this one too, because he has that drop line later about how uh, Casey had dumped him. And so that would make sense for him to kill her. But I, it doesn't really matter. It's just an interesting way to watch it because again, it, when the Who Done It spoiled, we're, the fun in the rewatch is trying to figure out who's where when. I think, and so we we could talk about that more. But boy, what a gruesome set of kills here too, because you get it's Drew Barrymore getting stabbed from behind. She gets drugged through the yard, and her mom and dad show up to see the house, you know, kitchen on fire and all this crap going down. And she, her mom picks up the phone to hear her daughter being killed on the other end of the line. I mean, what a horrible thing. Yeah, no doubt. It Pretty makes gross. me think, it made, it made me think of the, um, the Halloween kill. Oh, the where, one, uh, the one where Jamie on the Lee's phone. listening to yeah, the she's phone. She's on the phone with Jamie yeah. Lee Curtis. And yeah, it made me think of that for a brief moment, but, it's interesting how much this kind of it kind of takes its um, general plot from like all those Italian giallo movies because <laughs> they're all like bloody rapey mysteries. Not that there's like a ton of rape in this, but you know, yeah, the, there's the a lot image of, of a, Well, the image of a guy holding that kind of knife is like that's the go-to knife for every uh, you know. Mario Bava movie made from yeah, I got, 1965 I, to like 1994. Yeah, I got a House by the Cemetery feel off of this a little bit and a little bit of like Suspiria style stuff and things like that. Maybe not the complete weirdness that is Suspiria. That may be a, another day, though I'm dying you to talk about that, but because uh, that movie is really strange, but uh, especially nowadays. But yeah, yeah, I think the other thing here, and it, it can't be denied, is I think Kevin Williamson is a huge fan of the original Halloween because so much of this movie is paced and built like Halloween. This is like the first movie written by someone who has had access to like a video library. Yeah. It definitely, this is like, this feels like a turning point in like, you didn't just see the movies at like the the dollar theater anymore. You could go and rent everything you want to see on VHS. And this definitely feels like a synthesis of, you know, the previous 20 years of horror from around the world uh, brought in for a new hip generation. Well, think about it too. I mean, this is the era of Kevin Smith and Quentin Tarantino and like these indie self-referential directors who had seen everything and then just started putting all of that stuff in their movies. I mean, I think Pulp Fiction has as much to do with the fact that this movie got made as anything else because of the success that had and, you know, the tone of that script is similar to this one. I mean, I think Williamson wrote something that was very meta along those lines. Just not as many F words, but you know, he's got enough in there to go with it. But I, I felt like this owed a lot to that style of film that was popular at the time, too. I mean, they're not aping Leprechaun 3 on this movie. That's for sure. So <laughs> what do you make, though, of, of the scene right after we get Nev Campbell hanging out in her bedroom and the boyfriend stops by the window? 
you know. And like this movie wants to, it should be called the Red Herring Part One because it wants us to think, oh, it's this guy. No, it's this person. It could be this person. Maybe it's this one. But this is like the that uh, lesson of, hey, the first instinct's probably the right one. <laughs> we see Billy come by, and they have that whole really weird conversation about where their relationship is. He says it's like the TV version of The Exorcist, and I'm like, what in the hell does that even mean? Very strange. Yeah, that feels like a weird... That feels very much like an artificial reference to me. Uh, like, that doesn't feel like a natural... It, it does... It feels like... that. That That's one of the rare... Like, one of the missteps, I think, of the movie is that it, it definitely feels like a bunch of teenagers in a movie. Uh, and that know that are in a movie, witty. too. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah and Billy in particular, because in the end, when he's doing his big reveal of this is why we did it, you know, we watched a lot of movies, we took a lot of notes, you know, Stu says that, too. And when you watch this movie again, knowing that he's the killer and his motivations and stuff, you see him saying things like, well, I guess that's why you would say that. Cause you probably have been watching it, but I'm like, what, what in the H would you two get out of watching the exorcist? You're not going to conjure a demon to help you do this. Uh, that's uh, maybe that's in the third one. I don't remember, but I mean, you know, they weren't like they were, you know, that could be useful to you. I, it's not the kind of movie you watch. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's like no religion in this town <laughs> to speak of at all. So I don't, I don't know. It's uh, that was a weird metaphor, but it's the thing Kevin Williamson is known for that meta referential. And unlike some movies where there's always a character that is the voice of the screenwriter in there, I think everybody at some point is the voice of the screenwriter. So this is Billy's moment to do it, but they do have that very, I, I, all of that is there obviously to set up that there is friction in the relationship because doggone it. Sydney just needs to get over it and put out. Right. That's that's what he says to her. Which what a what a loser. Well, it sounds to me like well, it sounds to me like they had a sexual relationship until mommy died. Well, I think he says like they were going hot and heavy, like they had maybe gotten to second, heading toward third base, and then all of a sudden the freeze play was on, and he's been stuck on first ever since. Right. I think that's exactly well. I don't know. I don't know how far they got beforehand, but I think that's exactly kind of what happened is that they were getting into it. And then mommy got killed and everything has been cold since then. Yeah. I mean, cause you know, God forbid a relative being murdered brutally derail your sexual hijinks as a six. How could they? <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, the trial's over. Insensitive I mean. bastards. <laughs> I know, right? But I mean, that's their whole thing. But it's all the setup again to to get us started in this. And we do we get the drop with Sydney's dad's going out of town, and then you know she flashes him, and he's you know like, oh, you're such a d whatever. And I remember though having like Nev Campbell was the girl next door in the nineties. It was like, oh, hubba hubba. So you know, I thought she was way way hot and cute and uh i i was i was interested so i was like oh i can see this I, i'm digging so uh, it's um it works i mean again it's all a setup if if you know it you watch it and you go yeah obviously billy's involved in this i i'm curious and to hear from either of you and you just throw it in there when you when you can admit it when did you know or did you know 
and recall knowing there's got to be more than one person doing this. Cause I didn't see that coming until when they reveal it. The first time watching this, I remember thinking, Oh gosh, they, of course, but you watch this movie now and it's like, there's no other way this could work. unless There's more than one person involved. I never realized it. Yeah. And I love tabloid journalism happening here in front of us, right? Like you've got all of these people camped out at the school wanting to interview every kid about what's it like to go to Slaughter High and all this stuff going on, you know, and we meet Tatum, the best friend, Rose McGowan here, and she's filling Sydney in on all the lowdown of how Casey and Steve got killed. And this is when we meet Gail Weathers, our inside edition-esque reporter girl here, <laughs> right? Like that's what this is supposed to be, right? Mm-hmm. Totally. Do y'all remember these shows? Like when they were happening at the time, like Sally Jesse Raphael and Ricky Lake and you know, Mari before he started doing paternity tests. Well, those were talk shows. Inside Edition was your, like, uh, it would be like Entertainment Tonight, um, except for working on the shady side of things. <laughs> Do you remember who hosted Inside Edition? Wasn't that Bill O'Reilly at one time? Heck yeah, it was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There, there there were a lot of people that rolled through the Inside Edition set, if memory serves. Oh, yeah. I took this kind of like a cross between that and like all the Geraldo Rivera Investigates stuff, you know, uh, mm. beyond Al Capone's vault and other failures that he had. But, I mean, you, I could see this. I mean, it totally resonated. I'm like, yep, totally get it. You know, and Courtney Cox here plays this so well like she is such the ruthless out to get the story out for number one you know person she's yelling at her cameraman to move his lard ass out of there and get the shot and she, we have this confrontation between her and uh sydney and i love it i mean it's really it's funny the way that you can tell sydney hates this woman like hates her <laughs> It's quite obvious from the get-go, too. I mean, she she does not hold anything back on her disdain for Gale Weathers. <laughs> yeah, so Nancy Grace, as a fictional reporter, has modeled her career after a fictional reporter. That's a good, good pull. Um, I hadn't thought about that. It really is. It's funny how that works, but um, which you know it would have been the most meta thing of ever is if Fincher had gotten Courtney Cox to play the Nancy Grace ripoff from Gone Girl when they did that. I wonder if he even called her. Like that would have been awesome, but they 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 got somebody else to pull that off. But uh, anyway, uh, that would have could be. I that uh, that's another again another discussion for another day because wow, that movie is makes you feel awful but this one leaves you with this whole like what would it be like to go to high school the next day after somebody had been brutally murdered and uh again it's played in a lot of ways for ups but there's some scares here because like there's stuff going on but there's no killing going on for about 35 minutes in this movie and we get the obligatory everybody gets called in to be investigated with the cops and we, we meet principal Henry here the Fonz. Uh, Henry Winkler, um, which I got a huge kick out of. I mean, I loved the Fonz. Who didn't growing up, right? 
Yeah, I kind of think this is another thing that kind of threw Henry Winkler back into the pop culture. I don't know what he was doing in 96, but uh, I don't know if people are thinking about him. But then he's been in you know a billion things since. And I know he's worked for a long time and was a working actor and producer and stuff. But I think this put him back on the map. And it is like there's times where like he's combing his hair. So I'm like, it's like the Fonz grew up and became a principal. You know, it's sort of it's sort of played that way. It's it's funny, but um that yeah, that would have been too much. Again, there's like there's a fine line in your meta film like where it gets to be too much, you know, and uh that that would have been one that, that crossed too far. So I got a question for you guys here though, because we get a scene where Sydney after her interrogation or whatever goes to the bathroom and there's the two or three girls standing around the mean girls who like just totally talk all that trash about her, which I'm convinced that like all the mean girl uh, movie craze that came out modeled itself off of this scene. Cause gosh, that is harsh, uh, burned down of, of everybody. But beyond that, who, which one of the guys, who is it in the bathroom like, how did the killer Billy or Stu know I'm going to follow him to the bathroom and just kind of wait out for these other three, you know, twits to leave so that I can chase Sydney out the door? Like, I, that's, that's the one chase in this thing. Like, that didn't make any sense. And I was watching it with my wife and she thinks it's one of the killers. And I'm going, maybe that's just a prank and it's just there to throw us off because we've already seen kids pulling the prank in the, the costume. Yeah, it kind of, it kind of feels like a prank to me too. Um, if only because that's the only way I can make any sense of it myself, because I don't know how, you know, six and a half foot tall Matthew Lillard's going to sneak into a women's bathroom in a, <laughs> yeah. in a black dress and a ghost mask. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. yeah, I would I think so too. I, I, I don't think that Billy would be waiting in the women's bathroom for her. Well, no, I mean, these guys are in different places in scenes before, too, because Billy's had that confrontation with Sydney in the hallway about, you know, why can't we have more sex? You know, well, then that comes later, too. But they talk about this stuff and it's I don't know. It's just really it's really weird how all that goes down. And um, I, I don't know. I, I feel like that is the joke. It, Come to find out, one of the things I found out in research was that the Weinsteins told Williamson, you need something to happen here. Like, Principal Henry was not supposed to die in the movie because he is a, another red herring that you think it might be him, especially after that speech he gives about your thieving, whoring generation should all die as he's scissor-cutting <laughs> up the mask. You're both expelled. I'm like, holy cow, can a principal make that call? But like, Hell they were yeah, like, can. Well, yeah, well, they're like, we got we to gotta have like something going. So they built this chase scene and then his death in there to have something happen. And maybe that's why it feels a little false that who's this random person running out of the bathroom uh, after uh, Sydney at, uh, at that time. So we do get his kill though. And I, I gotta say, I liked it. I didn't see him you know, getting killed. So it was neat to watch him go down. And at the time I thought, man, this is one of these all bets are off. Like you know, the pickoff in a, in a slasher movie is always evident, but we're meeting people and then watching them die too which generally is a ding on these kind of movies but in this one i don't know it works I think it works because they feel more like actual characters than just fresh meat right they 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 may build them up for a very slow period of time but they they do kind of give you a little build up to these characters more so than just slashing and killing them instantly right they i mean they give you some backstory and, yeah. and some character development before they axe all these people 
Exactly. So exactly. So we uh we go ahead though now to Sydney's you know gonna spend the night with Tatum and she goes home and you know it's all on the news about her mother or whatever, so she falls asleep and wakes up in the evening and the phone rings and she gets her first call from the ghost face killer. And she has that first interaction. And I, I gotta say the Ghostface Killer, whichever one it is at the time, Billy or Stu, like takes a beating through this movie. Like these guys get the crap kicked out of them by this. By chick. Sydney, uh, right? several what times. The hell? Yeah, I know. Well, I, I like took Sydney as the kind of girl that you didn't realize was also a black belt in taekwondo, <laughs> you know, or something like that. Like she had picked that up along the way, and then just everybody forgot it. Yeah, I mean, she. I liked this whole scene because she basically thinks it's a BS prank and. She goes, I call your bluff, goes outside, stands there, and and taunts basically this guy. I thought that was kind of cool. It was good. And then a good chase through the house, too. And well, I had a question for you, Brian. She goes upstairs and eventually like barricades her door with her closet door so the killer can't get in there after her. But what is she doing on the computer? Isn't that like some... Uh, you know, hard of hearing software. She's dialing nine one one. So I did some research because you told me that this might come up, and uh, you know, Microsoft and Intel introduced telephone software in 1993 for the PC. So there is, as long as you're connected to a landline, there is a telephone software that you can use on your computer to call out. Okay, very cool, because this, to me, at the time, seemed like Star Trek technology. I was not on the internet heavy in 1996. I had an email account, and I think I knew what you know Yahoo was on a GeoCities frame rate page, but like I didn't know anything else about, about these, this kind of stuff. I didn't know you could do this kind of stuff, so I, I did think yeah, this I was, was kind of cool. neat, too. It felt to me, at least at the time, like one of those things that only exists in movies, like how um, in... Oh, the net, how she orders pizza online, and how I thought, <laughs> yes. well, there's no way that kind of crap will work in real life, and yet here we are these days, nobody calls the <laughs> pizza place anymore. I, right. <laughs> Dude, in my in my head, the, the, the uh, theme song to Mozart's Ghost just ran through my memory banks off of the net. Wow. Uh, that's a Sandra Bullock gem so, from, from yesteryear. Goodness gracious. Talk about a movie that doesn't age well. But anyway, I do love, though, that she gets the the upper hand here or whatever. She turns around, the killer's gone, and then Billy shows up through the window. And that, you know, huge, you know, Zach Morris 2.0 style cellular telephone drops out of his pocket. And my question to you two guys is, was this just to scare her or were they trying to kill her? Cause they make such a big deal out of the fact that they want to kill her on the, the anniversary. That's the next day. Are they just screwing with her at, at this point just to ratchet up the tension and Billy actually allows himself to get arrested so that he can throw the scent off of himself later? Is that what's going on here? I think that's probably very good observation because he does have Matthew then make a call uh, after he's been, I guess, booked in jail on suspicion um, to kind of throw him the scent off of his case. Yeah, I think that's exactly what's going on here. And they're just kind of playing with her, gauging her and all that kind of stuff, getting her freaked out. 
I think you guys are right. And we do get the great uh, scene at the, the police off, uh, station. And like I say, I, I like the fact that the cops in this movie are not the bumbling idiots or just completely absent from everything and don't believe what's going on. Like, they're doing good actual police work. You know, Dewey's taking a statement. He's trying to get information. Even if as bumbling as he's supposed to be, he's doing his job. The other cops are pulling things. You got the, the chief... Uh, investigating the cell phone calls. The dad is like, why don't you just look up the phone records? And he's like, okay, thanks. We'll get into that. You know, like, but he's still playing hard to get, you know, and, or tough cop with Billy. And you've got all of this stuff going on. And in the midst of it, of course, you've got poor Sydney over there who has been harassed by Gail Weathers about fingering the wrong guy cotton weary for a mother's killing and in the back of her head like the way nev campbell plays this is like am i doing this again am I, did i get the right guy do i know like we have this whole bit about that and punctuated by a great bit of comedy when she says something about i can't wait to read your book you know and gail's like this is you a copy that she just you know re reenacted by rose mcgowan later like boom bitch went down you know like it was that was awesome the way she just knocked her out now, here's a, um, a theory that I, I was working on. I don't know if they explicitly say it in the movie or not. Maybe you can correct me, but Gail got famous covering the mom's trial. That's right. correct. And that's the the whole reason why Sydney hates her this whole time. No, no, no. She, no. That, 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 that's that, not the reason. She, the, she, the reason is that um, yeah. she's trying to help Cotton Weary get out of jail because she thinks he's innocent and Sydney in her mind, knows he's the one who killed her mom. That's why she hates her. Yeah, she hates her because she she spread all those BS theories. She says she drops that line at the school earlier, and and then re, I think reiterates part of it here again at the well. Place. And the other fact that so, uh, she's saying that Cotton uh, Weary was having an affair with her mom, which makes her mom look bad. Right, and that comes up a couple of different times in this movie that Sydney has to come to grips with the fact that her mother kind of was the town slut. You know, and I, I thought, but that's a great um, character thing there because we never see what that would be like if you were the daughter of the town floozy who got murdered while she was cheating on her husband, you know, and all this stuff. Like, how would you deal with that? Like, what, what do you say? You know, I mean, I, I remember reading the Dave Cullen's Columbine book, and he talks a lot about the parents of the two killers and what they went through and and not to elicit sympathy for him but just to say that you know they they had a, a complete public shaming as well and what would that be like for you if if that was the rumor going around she has that whole conversation with tatum on the front steps is like you know how many times can you hear something and not think it's true you know a lot of people say that about your mom and i i don't know i, I like that whole bit i think it gave her a good reason to not like gail because again gail is i don't think gail's famous yet i think she's trying to get famous and she thinks this book is going to launch her and what she's trying to do is prove get something so she can get cotton out of jail because that will make her super famous i mean she's well known because dewey watches her on television they all watch her, we, we yeah. lay that out yeah they, everybody knows her right but she's not she's not the mega famous she's trying to get on the national she wants stage to be. yeah she wants to be barbara yeah. walters basically and and host whatever the precursor of the view was. So twenty twenty. Yeah, well, maybe so. So uh, we, you know, we we get the town curfew here, and um, 
you know, so long principal Henry, of course it has happened. And we get this great scene though, where Billy gets out of jail and he runs, he and Stu and Randy, we hadn't talked about Jamie Kennedy yet, run into Randy where he's working at the video store. And I mean, I'm watching that video store scene first thing, and I'm like, oh, memories. Mm. Remember going in just aisles of VHS? I miss the video store, I'll tell you that much. <laughs> yeah, this definitely caused some video store nostalgia for me, especially because I worked in a video store for a while. No way, no way I did not know that. Yes, in the, uh, like 2000. So there were still, oh, uh, wow. right, I was right there where VHS started to be phased out and DVD started to come in. Yeah, I mean, you see all the boxes he's putting on the shelf and yeah, everybody's in the store because I can remember like being in uh, towns where like bad weather was supposed to be coming in, which as Brian can go ahead and laugh in the South, that means that we're going to shut down and everybody's going to die in snow <laughs> apocalypse. But one of the things people would do is they would go to the video store and like just rent it out, you know, because you figure you're going to be stuck at home for a few days and who wants to watch the news all the time? You, you watch a bunch of videos. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I get it. But uh, I love the scene we have here between these three guys because you get Matthew Lillard and and Ulrich doing this whole psychological game on Randy. And I got to tell you, it has always struck me as weird the way Lillard kind of lays on the back of, of Skeet and stuff. Like, isn't that, that's just a little strange. Yeah, it was a, it was a little, um, it was slightly uncomfortable. Well, I mean, are they trying to say something is going on there, or is he just being a goober and a goofball and there's nothing to worry about? I, I think they're just making fun of him because he's such a huge movie guy. I think they're just making fun of him. Mm-hmm. Well, I man, I love how they turn it on him because as an audience member, you listen to that and you and Randy even tells you, you're right, I would be the first suspect if this were a movie. Because I'm the guy who watches all the horror movies. I seem to know all this stuff. He's dropped lines for that. He'll drop more. And it's mm-hmm. supposed... Yeah, exactly. He'll drop more and more and more. And, and he'll be you know the rule giver here in a little while at the house. But um, I don't know. I, I thought it was... Uh, it's, it's odd to watch those two together. Because, again, you watch this movie in retrospect knowing that they're the killers. And you see them. And this is sort of the precursor to what will be that kitchen. Even that city. still kind of feels oddly uncomfortable. It gave me flashbacks to uh, the movie Bully for some reason. Okay. I don't know why. I, I think just because there's such a there's such a clear power dynamic between the two of them where, you know, Stu is obviously not the one in charge. Right. So I think that, that well, might have been, you know, part of it. I want to ask you this now because it'll come up later in the kitchen, but I'm going to skip ahead for now. I've always thought that there's two people here, but I think Billy's intention all along is he's going to kill Stu and leave himself standing alone. Absolutely. Right. Okay. Yeah. I think you, you both have hit on the power dynamic thing, Ron, especially with what you said there, because you can tell, the brains of the operation and the driving force is Billy. Well, and I'm saying this knowing what the plot twist of the third movie is. So just based on what I've seen right now, I'm to believe Billy is the one behind this. So everyone put down your, your comment on the, the thread. We'll get there. But uh, anyway, uh, yeah, we go to the party at Stu's now and 
you have Gail show up and try to trying to figure out what to do, and then Dewey shows up too. And I uh, I like that they have like the little meet cute part two thing, and they start to see some some sparkage there. I thought Courtney Cox and David Arquette had good chemistry. I mean, it is the why would the ten ever go for the doofy guy like that in real but, life too? Yeah, that happens. <laughs> yeah so uh yeah i mean it really happens, like that's man. the funny thing is yeah it does happen and uh, but i liked that though because again that's something that seemed like something that became the plot of how many different teen rom-coms in the 90s and early 2000s it was like every other my one. favorite part of this whole thing was the fact that you had the cops knowing that this party was going on attending the party and not doing a thing about it <laughs> well I mean, even he says it's like you're just some kids cutting it loose like that <laughs> reinforced to me like how small exactly. a town this really was and how old dewey is i mean dewey's maybe 22 maybe or no he says he's 25 right so he's not that much older than all these right. kids and so you you get the sense that he's still kind of doing what he did in another drew barrymore movie where he tries to relive high school glory right yeah, pretty much he's he's the he's the old man now right everybody knows dewey Kind of think he's a dork, which he kind of is, but yeah. But they walk around the party, but I love Gail and her cameraman's little slide thing here where she slides that camera, you know, it, into the next to the video recorder so that they can get the loop of what's going on inside. And like, it's, it's just, it's so convenient that the television is angled at just the right way where you can get that full pan of the well, loop. Of course. But what's with the delay? <laughs> Why is there such a delay? I would took that only as it, it's going off a radio frequency signal, mm. so there's going to be a delay in it. Like I it's not a, wireless was even still the, very new at that point. Well, except for it, with the well, moon it, and whatnot. Well, I mean, it it is. There's a delay in the the moon, like the the astronauts that are traveling places. The messages going back and forth were on a well, delay. That makes like, anything sense. They're millions away of miles away. Well, yeah, but even even on that kind of a shortwave radio frequency, one, they wouldn't have the license at the time to have anything more powerful than that because it would it would freak out all the other electricity and electrical systems in the area. And two, you would have to have like special training to be able to get those military style stuff that goes more than, you know, the 20 feet they had between the door and the side. I totally bought that. The part of that is me being at the time the radio, television, journalism student. Like I, I totally understood what he was talking about. About like yes, there would be a there, delay. Maybe not that long on one, but there would but be. But they're a, a news crew who does live news feeds. They have the equipment to do live stuff. Yeah, but they're not at a place where they're plugged up to run. They've the got fish the, they've got the truck, was, but they weren't using like their full size camera. They were just using some like off the shelf, uh, you know, spy store crap webcam. <laughs> I mean, or maybe the. I mean, like last yeah. night, I watched a fireworks display, and the I heard the sound of the fireworks going off before the fireworks were on my TV. And this is twenty seventeen, and the fireworks were literally down the street from me. Yeah. So, I mean, there's still there are still mm -hmm. delays in things now. I mean, I, for whatever reason, I could be watching something on the TV downstairs, and my wife could be watching the same thing on the TV upstairs. And if I'm on cable and she's on the antenna, then it's there's going to be a delay between the two screens. I mean, look, 
I mean, look, I, I was outside of Jordan-Hare Stadium when Auburn returned to the kick on Alabama in 2013, and I knew Auburn had broken free and scored five seconds before I saw it on the television. I, I watched it on. And I was just outside of the stadium at a tailgate spot. So we still have that today. I mean, I, I get it. It makes sense. Yeah, I get that. But there's also mandatory delays on live stuff, too. There are, but I I took it as this is also a plot convenience because we have to have some way of giving the killer the advantage. If we're going to let these people have the spy cam, then there's got to be a delay in it so that they can one of somebody can get killed when they don't see it coming. And it turns out to be the camera guy later because he's like, "Oh crap!" And then he turns around and he gets his throat slit. Plus, I mean, how how good of a camera guy do you think Kenny actually was? Yeah, he's always eating Cheetos. Like he looked like he was sm- smoking a spliff on the side too. Like he was always having the munchies. Maybe you know? uh, the way uh, she's already had to get on with her. He probably was. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, maybe so. Maybe maybe she was tough to well, work. Well, you saw her. All she did was we, chew him out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, constantly. Well, okay, we've got to talk about Tatum's kill in the garage here. Um, this is the second moment where I felt like we had a character spewing out horror references to stuff when she would have no business nor reason to be the kind of person that would know a movie like I spit on your grave, you know, or whatever. Like I spit on your garage and it, that gave me like, you know, I don't shocking, know. I mean, you know, thoughts. I think that we're to understand that this town watches a lot of horror films. Yeah. I needed that. I mean, isn't, isn't she like, too? well, she gets the, the, she gets all her references wrong. Doesn't she? How so? Like she, she gets. Doesn't she say like, uh, like an Elm Street? Is there like an Elm Street reference that she makes where it's wrong? Oh, she yeah, she she does the the West, West Carpenter. Carpenter yeah, she does that. So I think she yeah. just has been hanging out with Randy too much and, and overhears these third hand references to things that she doesn't actually see because. It's established, at least earlier in the movie, that she doesn't actually watch any of the horror movies. Right. I mean, she's... Again, I think Tatum is supposed to be, like, the more slutty best friend. She is, right? yes. Like, that's definitely. who she's supposed to be. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, that's pretty clear, right? I mean, even just the way she dresses, you know. you can well, see The way she makes like, out with Stu in the hallway and everything else. Right, and like, like he's carrying her upside down as they walk down the street, and she's in that you know midriff shirt and all this stuff. I mean, she's definitely got a little bit of that bad girl stuff going. So I guess I get it, but I like the fight that she puts up here in the garage because we're to presume this is Billy because Stu's inside being party host. Well, yeah, he's not going to kill so, his girlfriend. Yeah. <laughs> Well, no, but he knows it's going down. That's why Billy gives him that little nod when he shows up at the door in like five minutes or whatever. But I, I liked the way she, you know, she fights back or whatever. The killer gets beer all spilt all over him. And then he kills her with the cat door though, which I'm, I don't know about you guys. Like I, I've never had a garage door. My dad's got one and like that, that thing can barely lift itself. I don't know that it could lift a 108 pound Rose McGowan, nor do I think the front half of her could fit through it like that. I mean, she could probably wedge herself through it if she really tried hard, but you're right. There is not a garage door opener that's ever been made that can lift a person off of the ground. I mean, yeah, because, you, you know, my parents have had garage doors, and we had to get, like, a more powerful garage door opener because we had a big aluminum, uh, like, three-car garage door. So, so we couldn't just use, like, this 
the standard one. We had to get like one for real garages. <laughs> yeah, he's not the Sears Craftsman model doing that job. I do the, the smart thing this movie does though is when the killer goes back inside, opens the door, and you hear like the party raging in the background. Because the whole time I'm going, how in the age does nobody hear this garage doing? Well, it's on the back and, end of the and house. All this so. stuff. Well, that, and I do think the party's raging inside, but like that's that sound is looped in there for a reason. It's because for anyone who might go, wait a minute, why can't anybody hear this? Oh, that's right, because she's you know, getting it this way. It's pretty pretty uh, quick cut, but a really awful way to see her head get crushed like that, too. Yeah, it's, yeah. A, it's a great effect. I, I enjoy that. Billy shows up at the party as everybody else or most people are starting to bail out and and leave and they're they're getting ready to go and and all this stuff and you've got um Sydney and there of course and she's trying to figure out what happened to Tatum and Matthew Lillard's all like why don't you two go use my folks room and you can talk you know like he's trying to make it happen or whatever and I, this is that's another trope from like 80s slasher films is everybody always tried to get it on in like the parents bedroom and I'm like who in the hell wants to do <laughs> oh, that shit, right <laughs> Ew. I mean, of all places. Yeah, it's very... Yeah. But anyway, um, while they're going off to do that, though, we do get the, the scene as, as it's happening in between here. Randy gives the rules of the horror movie. And it is, again, a moment when a character steps out and has to, is going to tell the audience, you need to be paying attention because all of these things that I'm going to tell you are, are about to happen. In front of <laughs> no shit. And it's, it's when this movie becomes super meta. I like this scene. I thought it was kind of fun to, that he goes through the whole thing. Like everyone's there getting drunk and he's like, you don't know the rules. You can't do this. Oh, that just happened. You can't do that. Oh, that just happened. Oh, you can't do this. Oh, shit. That just happened. <laughs> well, yeah, it's like, you know, no drugs or drinking. And everybody's like, whatever. And he, you know, he clangs beers with somebody's like, no sex. And that's like the scene they cut away and Sydney takes her shirt yep. off. And it's like, okay. So it's, it's all these pieces. And then Stu, of course, gets up to go do the fake kill on Billy, but it's like, don't say I'll be back. Oh, I'll be back, you know, and all that crap. So I think it's funny though that. I I got this whole new nightmare flashback to me where Craven is laying out the rules of the of the the horror movie to Heather Langenkamp and I you know, we talked about it when we, when we reviewed that Brian that that in a lot of ways is considered to be sort of Wes Craven's dry run at this type of horror yeah we movie. did mention that when we did the the Nightmare on Elm Street series and I think I think you're right um, but I think it's just a good play on horror movies. I mean, what are the most common things that happen in horror movies? Here they are. So don't do them. But in the fact that like you have a horror movie now that is populated with people who know the rules and are going to break because them, it's a horror movie. And <laughs> yeah, but, but the stuff is still going to happen to them. That's, That's the, the I guess, part. is that the, the irony well, they're going for here? Absolutely. I mean, it's, it is a, a joke on horror movies in a horror movie. Right. So they're going to tell you, oh, don't do this. And then we're going to do it on the movie because it's not supposed to happen. Right. So just showing you how silly horror movies are. I, I always wondered, um, the, was, uh, principal Hembry, how he's played out on the goalposts or whatever. Was he planted out there specifically to get everyone to leave the party? 
I would say yes. I think so. Yeah, because, yeah, there's got to be somebody who – and who makes that call or whatever, right? Like, we, does he say – does Randy say? I always thought, like, that's Stu calling, saying he's somebody else, and that, Some that'll comes flush in, the he? crowd. A kid comes running in. No, it's – the, the oh, phone right. rings, and Randy picks it that's up. Right. Yeah, so that's the – which, who answers the phone at somebody else's house, by the way? That's another – I guess that happened before. I, I would never do that, but anyway – so <laughs> exactly yeah really like i don't have i don't have a phone at my house too if you call me now and i don't recognize the number you ain't and yes, i ain't answering exactly so you know that ain't that you're going to the block list quick so uh, thanks Obama. google the number anyway, if it comes uh, up in 800 uh, notes <laughs> gone <laughs> yes yes exactly it's like it's the first thing i do you know? but you know what that's the, the, the thing too this movie popularized uh caller id like i saw something that like caller id went up usage went up by like this exponential amount after this movie came out and i do remember like my parents got caller id at their house after this time well, it started so, to get big um, after this time i mean i would say 96 97 98 is the the start of caller id but everybody right, right. had it by 98. I, I gotta say, I don't necessarily want the gore or whatever, but did either of you want a cut scene of Principal Henry? You no. Know, on the, the, like, what are those kids hoping to see at that point if that really is the cops? Like, they're not going to leave that up. That's why, again, I think it's well, of course too you're gonna leave it flush up in the as house. They're, as they're processing the scene. Yeah, but I mean, look, they're going to let anybody get near it. Well, of course, like, nobody's going to be allowed is... to get near it, but that, that's the whole thing. If you got got 100 students coming at you at once, how are you going to stop them all? Well, and, and, yeah, I'm, I'm and you forgetting... don't have to be that near if you've got a pair of, uh, you know... Uh... Binoculars? Yes, th those things. <laughs> a telescope? Well, and I, I'm forgetting... <laughs> I was I was driving down the interstate today, and everything came to a crawl just so we could all slowly go by the wreck and look. That at happens it. all the time, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, is that we we must Docker see effect, the carnage? Yeah. I guess. So, yeah, there you go. That's a good. That's a good point. So we we get Billy and Sydney having this whole thing where she's like, you know, like she still s suspects him in some way, and then of course the killer shows up and and stabs him, and we think Billy's dead, right? Like this is the ultimate fake out of all of this stuff. And this is when all hell breaks loose. Like the camera guy gets toasted. Uh, Gail runs off with him, bleeding all over the windshield. She has that huge wreck. Um, you got Sydney running around the house. She's beat to hell at this point. Dewey gets stabbed in the back. And oh, yeah, I mean it's it's a gruesome five minutes here as as the kills start. The bodies start piling up with the kills count here. It is the climax scene, right? Everything goes down. It's heading toward it. Yeah. Yeah, it's heading toward what will be the climax. You're right. In the standard slasher movie, this is the climax where the pickoff gets really quick before we get to Final Girl and Kill. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a lot going down, but there, there had to be for the plot to get where it needs to be, right? They needed to have Sydney alone and nobody else around to to really make it work. So anyone who's left is going to get it. I love the way the scene plays too with the killer having the keys to Dewey's truck and like unlocking the doors, <laughs> you know, randomly around her and then slowly pushing that trunk up so you can sneak in and try to get. Yeah. It. I thought that was pretty fun too. And really, where the hell did you get the keys? 
Well, he stabbed Dewey. Just and took him? Presumably, probably got him. Well, I mean, yeah, he bends down to get the knife. Why couldn't he get the keys yeah, too at that point? So. Or Dewey dropped the keys. Who knows? That's also... We, we missed a scene, too, in here that's kind of important, and that's where uh, Dewey and Gale heard about a car wreck, and they go to investigate, right. and it ends up being... Uh, the father, uh, Sydney's father's car, who they've been looking for this whole movie because the, he he went right. missing. He was supposed to be at some conference and never showed up, and he went missing. So they have a suspicion that he may be the killer. Right, and as it turns out, Billy and Stu have abducted him, cloned his cellular, and are basically pinning all of this on him, or planning Correct. to, I should say. I don't think they cloned He's his cellular. The- I think they stole his cellular. They say that, like Stu says some line about clone oh. the cellular, clone the cellular, missed that. and I'm like, could you do that in Absolutely. 1996? I guess I don't know. CIA's technology's everywhere, guys. It can, you, know. <laughs> you know, there you go. That's that's probably the truth. Then we have SIM cards in '96. I guess I remember my first so. <laughs> phone was from a company called Voice Stream, which I think today is T-Mobile, um, and they had SIM cards. <laughs> mm-hmm. That would have been 1997. Yeah, I, I didn't. Ha- I didn't have a cellular phone at this point. I didn't get any kind of cellular technology till 1999, and I got a pager. Mm. Oh, I had a pager in high school. <laughs> Remember the days, though. Like, with, I mean, the stigma around that, and they even dropped that line in, earlier in the movie about who needs to be. You know, the only people that need to you need to get in touch with 24 hours a day are doctors and drug dealers. So like, why would you ever need that? And now like, if I don't have my cell phone with me, I like naked. so much stuff. We have all of this stuff going, going down here before everything completely derails. And we get that great scene where Sydney gets Dewey's gun and Randy and Stu both show up at the door and it's like, which one is it? Which one? And I love that she is smart enough to go, screw you both, and slams the door in their face. Because at that point, we still don't know who it is. Like, we think it could be Randy still. It's obviously not the principal now because we've seen him killed. It could be Stu. We don't know, yeah, right? Yeah. And I don't. I loved her decision there to well, yeah, say she, no. She has no clue, so it makes sense for her to do something like that. Absolutely. She's protecting herself. She thinks her boyfriend's dead. And it's a good way to draw out the last standing red herring uh, to 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 just muddy the waters for that one little bit longer to try to, you know, fool people like me who don't pay attention. <laughs> well, I mean, you, you get Billy stumbling down the stairs and he gets the gun from him. He's like, it's all right. It's all right. And he lets Randy in and then drops that whole Norman Bates line before he shoots him in the shoulder. You know, and I'm like, one, Billy is a terrible shot. He's got Randy four feet away <laughs> from him nuts. and he can't hit him. And he, I know. And he hits him in the friggin' arm. <laughs> I'm like, man, you suck. I, I know the Beretta 92F is, is a bit of a gun to try and wield, but it's, it's really accurate, especially at that kind of range. <laughs> and all I can do is shoot him in the arm. It's not, like, not going to be right. <laughs> not at four feet. It's like the magic bullet happened. So, but, yeah. I don't know. I guess it's just a reveal that like he's so cocky that he just shoots and is like, whatever, don't care. Well, the other thing, too, is like he shoots and then he like rubs his temple with the gun. I'm like, bro, that's going to be a contact burn. That's going to hurt. <laughs> So I was like, nobody does that, you <laughs> moron. But anyway, so it's uh, yeah, I, I works know better with the safety shoes, off. But... 
<laughs> oh yeah, we get that a little bit later, right? So, which that wasn't that a joke in one of the Die Hard movies too? That like Jeremy Irons shoots Samuel L. Jackson, we're like, yeah, hey, it works better when the safety's not on, you know, or whatever. But he's got it point blank. I seem to remember that. If so. it's Samuel L. Jackson, that's what the third one or fourth one. Yeah, yeah don't watch that somewhere. Shit. I don't know. It's <laughs> it's not the one. It's not the one in. It's not the one in uh, DC with the plane. It's the one where they're running around New York or something. So I guess that's the third one. So the fourth one. Yeah. Okay. Because yeah, the fourth one's when Bruce Willis like skateboards. The fourth on the one is not even worth talking about. Just, just be quiet. Yeah. Don't, move, don't ruin on. it. So, but yeah. I, <laughs> I love the the reveal here, though, from Billy, and you get Stu to come in right behind, and he's got the little voice box changer thing, and which I did think that was the coolest thing in the world. I thought, oh, where's that technology? It didn't really exist at that point, but but they they well, play sure it off it like it does, and so not oh, really, yeah. no, like not commercially. You couldn't well, get not, that stuff. No, in not commercially, exactly. but you could find it. It existed. Underground. Oh, no, it worked in the films. Yeah, yeah. You had to, but it wasn't something you could go buy at your Spencer's. Now you could two years later because of well, the yeah. No, you had to go in the undergrounds in the criminal sects. Brian's revealing things here to us, Ron. <laughs> I think. I, I don't. So you're, you're never wait, heard of well, the black wait, market. When was um, when did Home Alone two come out? Because Kevin McAllister had that thing that changed his voice. Didn't it change its voice? Yeah, but that was like the kid thing. Like this, this does like sinister. Home Alone Two was 1992, by the way. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's that was yeah, so. This is voice but, but this is technology existed. that you could get access to. I, I mean, there's, well, I want to tell you what I think. This is a, a riff of is, is New Year's Evil. Have either of you ever I seen love that? that movie. You know, like. Yeah, like that. This feels like New Year's, like the call, right? Like this is the same thing. I mean, I just think that this was something that you could get um, easier than we think. In hindsight, maybe well, it was. Maybe I'm wrong. Well, I mean, these two losers did get it. You're and right, like so. at every mall, there's a little security place that sold like uh, secret pin cameras and like. Glasses where you could push a button on the the sunglass and you could see behind yourself and and crap like well, that. Better yet, you could flip to the back of your your creep show uh, edition and get your voodoo doll and X ray glasses and all that so other. Do, crap do you want to know when the voice coder became in existence? Nineteen thirty two. Wow! So I'm completely wrong. <laughs> 1932. Okay. They started working on it in 1928. Now, by 1939, they had patents granted. If this was an Alex Jones show, there would be like expose video of it, and it would be (laughs) part of the Illuminati and take it over. I love though how they lay out the entire plan because again this is this is actually a James Bond villain trope, but it does happen in horror movies too. You don't get it in the slasher genre so much. Um, Freddy never really told you what he was doing. Jason and Michael don't talk, so everybody has to figure it out. But there's some scene along the way where everybody lays it out, and I love how they lay out their whole plan. And I got to tell you, it's a psycho plan, but there's there's a logic to it. And I appreciate the fact that there was thought put into how would they pull something like this off? That's completely wrong and batshit crazy, but it in their world it works. Well, I mean, right? they pulled a lot of it off. <laughs> they got pretty far. 
I mean, yeah, they got a guy going to prison for the crimes that they committed, they the, and they have then the dad locked up and kidnapped. Uh, right. He ain't going anywhere. They got his phone, so they've already made it so that they can track the phone. They've already murdered several people. Um, they've got their one target that they need left right there, ready to go. And if they didn't waste the time to tell the whole plot to her and Randy, well, who is still alive, just shot in the arm. Um, they could have pulled it up. That's not their mistake. Their mistake. It's not their mistake to tell her the plot. The mistake is to start stabbing each other before they kill her. I'm like, you got ahead of yourself, guys. Like, you kill her and then you stab yourself. Yeah, that was uh, pretty dumb. That, <laughs> the only I do have an answer for it though, and I'm gonna just throw this out there as a theory. This is when I think we're confirmed that Billy plans to kill Stu, and so he wants to do this now so he can really injure yes. Stu. Because let's say, Stu is a foot taller than him, so it you you better have something on your advantage to, to take him down. It's like when uh, Joaquin Phoenix stabs Russell Crowe before they do the gladiator thing. You know, he's, he's got to have some advantage. No, that makes complete sense to me, because he stabs him pretty good. I think the cool part about this, and I love it, it's Matthew Lillard's face, and this is great, is they're laying out the motives or whatever, and when Billy tells uh, Sydney, your whore of a mother, you know, had sex with my father, and that's why my mother abandoned us, and Lillard's got this look on his face like, shit, I didn't know that. Like, he did, like, I, don't, I wonder, did he not know that as part of the motive? I don't think motive? he did. Because the look on his face is, yeah, the look on his face is like, Holy shit, I didn't know yeah, that. I don't think he really did. And I don't think he really knew the complete motivation behind this whole thing until now. He was just going along for the ride because it was cool. It, it definitely reads to me like this is the first dude's hearing about any of this, which just further reinforces that uh, Billy was the brains all along. Um, oh, yeah. But it, it definitely makes me right. think of like, Again, it's just a, it kind of harkens back to the Giallo movies that I mentioned earlier. Cause there's always a scene in those where the knife wielding killer explains his whole motivation behind why he or she has been, you know, carving up lingerie models or whatever. So I think it's, it, it goes back the pre slasher foundation, I guess. And it kind of, and it kind of ties in more of that weird, kind of homosexual undertones with Billy and Stu's relationship because they're awful touchy with each other. Yeah. Like this, I've been told by more than one person and have read it, had read into it that this is a take on Leopold and Loeb. If you guys haven't, you know what they're all about, that they killed a kid at random in Chicago in the 1940s. And they were like affluent white boys that, had no other reason to do that other than they were in a relationship with each other and they just felt like they could get away with it basically. Um, and to hear them talk about it, it was, it was just the thing to do, you know, that it, it plays on a little bit of that. I think, I don't know. People may also be reading into that a little bit. I do think there is a good argument to be made that these two had a relationship beyond just somebody manipulating somebody else to do crime. Um, but again, played off by Lillard's, uh, you know, hanging off of everything Billy says. And we do know Billy is like this overly sexualized person anyway. That's all he ever talks about is sex until he starts killing people. And then he talks about that, you know, I mean, it, it wouldn't be a surprise for me that he, you know, played, played both sides of that coin. 
that or, or you know, I'm flashing forward to uh, uh, Skyfall when uh, you've got, uh, what's his name, rubbing Daniel Craig's leg. And he's like, what makes you think it's my first time? And I'm like, oh, well, we revealed something about Bond we never thought of before either. But OK, so I don't know. OK, Brian, what do you think? I mean, we, we just laid out our ac- academic theory on the potential homosexual undertone of this film. Do you think it's there or are we just? I don't think it's there. Personally, I I don't see it. I just think that Lilliard is an idiot, and he just went along with it for fun. <laughs> that I can see too. I just I don't know the the weird affection does play it weird. Maybe that is just his thing to do to just it is off putting. I mean, I think there is something about that, particularly in 1996, that really would have made an audience uncomfortable. And I think that's why it still works on that level. But I, he gets a great line, though, after they've stabbed the crap out of each other and then they're getting ready to kill Sydney. He goes to get the gun and he's like, uh, Houston problem. And I understand that is totally ad libbed and it's, it's hilarious. It still works, you know, that, that Gail has snuck in and got the gun. And uh, you know what I love about this, though, with, with Courtney Cox and the gun is she doesn't hold the gun immediately like she's friggin' Dirty Harry. Like, she knows what she's doing. That's a huge gun. If either of you ever shot a bread at 92F, that's a big gun. She is not a big person, so in her hand it looks massive, and she's shaking to death. She doesn't know what she's doing. I like the fact that you you think, yes, pick up the gun, but if you don't know what you're doing with it, you, you just picked up a paper. Mm, definitely. It is interesting to see people handling guns in movies not immediately expert users of it i mean think about the the end of halloween 2 for a second brian jamie lee curtis picks up a 38 special and drills two into michael myers face the first time she ever shoots a gun <laughs> right, right? <laughs> this is a far contrast to that more realistic so, as much as williamson likes this stuff i but that's what i like about it as much as williamson likes to reference slasherdom he at least recognizes that wouldn't work that way it would be somebody holding a gun that didn't know what they were doing. And indeed, she doesn't have the safety off, so she doesn't know what she's doing. <laughs> That's helpful. Yeah, but it gives Sydney time to get away. And, I, man, my my favorite part of this is when Sydney calls uh, Stu and Billy and just, just lays into both of them. Like, who just called the cops on your ass? You know, and so uh, Mama's Boy and all this stuff. I mean, it's it's thick in there, some of the stuff she's throwing at him. And I'm like, I'm already like Sydney because beyond being obvious final girl, she's proven herself to be pretty tough chick at this point. Like, we've seen her beat the crap out of one of these guys earlier, and she's fairly resilient in the midst of all this stuff. And I like that she's smart enough to discombobulate them even further by the I think it's smart as well. I mean, it definitely throws them off their game. They, they, she needs to do something to help her make her get away. Right. Um, or whatever she's going to end up doing, but, um, definitely they aren't expecting her to fight back. I don't think, I mean, I think they're expecting this to go easy from here on out. And the fact that she keeps throwing them for a loop or Gail shows up and throws them for a loop and, you know, Randy shows up, throws them for a loop. All this stuff is kind of, pissing them off well let me ask you guys this and and ron i'll start with you on it do we need to see sydney kill these two guys or would you have been satisfied had she held them at bay until the cops the cavalry showed up to take them into custody well i think that's part of what makes the movie work is that they are very meticulous about not going for the obvious sequel setup. 
because I mean, one of them could have lived or whatever. They could have seen, you know, the the ambulance speeding away with one of them on a gurney, and then oh, you've got your instant sequel. And mm-hmm. weirdly right. enough, or smartly enough, they don't go for the obvious. You know, one of Billy and Stu live escape from jail or whatever kind of thing. Or the fact that, you know, they're very manipulative people. People think she's kind of psycho girl here who's uh, had a lot of trauma in her life. Who are you going to believe on the stand if they turn against her or, or all that? So there's a possibility remotely that she doesn't seem like a credible person to put him away. Well, yeah, because at this point Correct. she was the star witness who put the wrong guy. On well, death yeah, row. she would be so, the star yeah, witness any good to defense then get him out like, and really put these guys in the place. Sydney Prescott, right? Which again, a good yeah. defense attorney, Johnny Cochran, would be like, "This woman's word does not fit. You must quit." You know, I mean, really, like that would that would happen at the trial, <laughs> but we're not going to get that because she stabs him with a friggin' umbrella, which I'm like, at ouch. You know, first, because that is awful, um, <laughs> which is, you know, because in one of his wounds. And I, the one part of it that feels a little false to me is that Sydney put the, the outfit on. And we haven't talked anything about the ghost face killer outfit and, you know, how generic it really is and stuff. That's one of the reasons I think it works. I have one. Because it is so generic and it was something yeah. you could literally buy at a five and dime around the corner from you you have one see so uh, th- the fact that she puts that on though i'm like i get you get the voice it thing does feel weird back, like why it would almost you makes you think well maybe she was like, I, that uh, part of this the whole time i mean that that would be an interesting wrinkle but uh yeah i think it it just feels like a, a movie decision it could be that she does it to kind of uh, make herself not afraid anymore of the outfit. Yeah. So she puts it on. Says hey, it's not that bad. Or maybe to to like further, or maybe to like yeah. further take them by surprise. Kind of yes. Keep them from you know trying to stab her instantly. I guess so. I mean, not to know which one had what going. Yeah, I guess that at that point would would work. Though I don't think either either <laughs> one of them would confuse her in the outfit for either of them because as not large as Skeet Ulrich isn't, he's still bigger than her, <laughs> you know, like by a lot. So anyway, whatever. It's just it's one of those things that I'm like, I think you made the right point, Brian. It's it's the empowering moment. It's Jenny putting on you know Mama uh, Voris's sweater, Ron, at the end of of. Friday thirteenth two. It's the daughter grabbing Freddy's glove and stabbing him with it, it and Freddy's yep. dead, Brian. I think that's you know, it's her getting over her fears of this, right? So um and it and it works. I mean, you know, she does shoot him and uh, he goes down and you know, there's there's no doubt. She I mean she puts another one right in his head. Before we talk about Billy's death though, how about Stu, man? He gets I, I love the fact that the little moment at the end of it is you know, she's like in your dreams because he's giving her this whole like rapey vibe, like, oh, is it this thing for you? And she throws the TV on him, and his last sound is <laughs> a, you know, it's a shaggy, which, which I, I love. It, it's funny. How to go by TV, huh? Would that be a great way to go? <laughs> I know. Well, it's, I mean, a, it's, it's a, it's a, a fun callback to, to uh, Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer. Well, see, and, I, and Nightmare yeah. on Elm Street 2, is it? 3? Three? 3. Yeah. I t- 
Three, three, yeah. W- welcome to prime time. Yeah, no, that the Henry. I man, I totally forgotten that, Ron. That's a good callback. So yeah, it's it feels like that. But then the shooting at the end. I mean, she she puts one in his body, and then Randy's giving his rules again. This is where the killer comes back for one more scare, and sure enough, he pops up, and she puts one right in his head. She's and I'm like, well, at least we yeah. know that at point blank range, Sydney's much better than he was. So. Yeah, so she she's got a chance. And so um but I'm like, man, for this girl to be as traumatized as she was by the the death of her mother and finding all of that carnage and stuff like that, like she blows somebody but, away yeah. at the end of this. And like I we don't see her in the end. We just see Gail with a camera crew. Like I'm like I need her like being comforted by the cops. You know, because we see Dewey's not actually dead, so they they give us that. But I'm like, what what would that be like for this girl? As as much as empowerment as this is, that she took control and killed the killers, she should just I'm shoot somebody. somebody in the face. I'm kind of surprised she didn't like not really hop into a jeep that. and drive to Mexico. <laughs> <laughs> Go, yeah, go, go uh, full. I mean, wait let's for the, go wait in for some other references while we're here, here you know? <laughs> Might as well. We, we, we referenced everything else. Or she could do a, a like a journal and she does a Sulaco recording for uh, our, uh, the, the Nostromo recording Ripley does with a cat. I mean, we, could, we could do that. I don't think Williamson was a fan of that, though, or not as big a fan as he was, like Halloween and stuff like that. So, <laughs> so he, here's but she thing. doesn't lay in the she, floor crumpled going, was that the She has put the wrong guy in jail. <laughs> you know, She's either, been dealing so with the is. death of her mother for over yeah. a year now. She's got all this crap going on. Someone's out to kill her. She finds out that right. not only her boyfriend is one of the killers, but he's one of the people who killed her mom as well. Also, she finds out, well, and her mom was raped too, so gross. She also has just had sex with this guy. So she's probably a little pissed off right now. And this is her finality of the whole situation. Just pop him down. I would. (laughs) I guess so. That's a good way to say it. You know what she comes off as, honestly? She's Nancy at the end of the first Nightmare movie. When she bring that lame ending up. She does come off. I'm going to turn my back on you. <laughs> <laughs> but that, I mean, again, it's a reference uh, to horror movie. Well, she, she but turns that, her back what on happens? and turns around. It, I mean, it's a little her. more violent, but that's the same thing. It's the same. Well, it's the, it's the same emotion is what I'm trying to say. Help me out, Ron. Am I crazy or what? Because Craven is, he didn't write any of the script, okay? He'll tell you now, this is all Kevin's stuff. But to think he didn't have hands in some of this, and some of their, if we're going to call back to well, John just Carpenter to, so many times, yeah, just to think that you're Kevin throw me a wasn't going to do that oh, anyway, I'm pretty no sure matter who it, was yeah. going to, I mean, he was going to call back to all the 80s movies. I, I think, I think, I don't think it was something that, uh, Wes Craven had to add. Now, Wes Craven might have provided the the red and green Christmas sweater that he was wearing in his cameo. Uh, yeah, I, I I missed who it was the the, the when I <laughs> yes, rewatched the, the podcast I love that, so. because I was too busy looking at the handlebar mustache he's wearing. <laughs> Yeah, 
<laughs> yeah, it's a good it's a good uh, disguise there. So as as uh, Principal Henry's talking about you bunch of cowards, or what'd you say to me? <laughs> so it's uh, another reason you hate to see Principal Henry go down. But Live no, we Gail gets her big scene. story here at the end. I mean, she's beat to hell, but she's gonna go on camera anyway. And I love how she's like tried to clean up some of the blood. Oh yeah, because she ain't losing this story, man. I mean, this would this would be Nancy Grace, right? This is what this is Geraldo. This is what they do. Well, I mean, yeah, look, it's an nah, immediate even, crew. I was, like all I'm I sure could that think was once she everyone, grabbed once local the cops news knew, crew and these, said, "Do you want to be famous? Come raid, with me." They listened like, to the police scanners all yeah. day. Once they knew it was there, they probably sent someone down. I mean, clearly there's, there's lots of things to explain here. So, but they do leave us on that hang of, you know, all of this goes down in this remote, you know, farmhouse out here in the, in the hills and what's to become. And there, you know, there wasn't an idea for a sequel. This was a one shot deal. And then we ride off into the nineties rock sunset. We didn't talk about the soundtrack on this. Any guys, I think the second film is a little more iconic for that, but there was a lot of music in this that can only exist in this time frame. Like, it, yeah, this was a, a popular, like uh, this was a popular time. soundtrack in, in my high school. So, Alice Cooper. I mean, you got what? There's a little collective Nick Cave soul in the on Bad Seeds who I make despise, I can't remember way. all of it off the top of my head. Alice the Red Cooper. Right yeah, Hand. Yeah, you got schools mm. out. Mm-hmm. I don't even oh, I know who that is. So let me wow. tell you a story. Is that, I went to that song? Okay. Back in 90... You don't like that song? <sighs> Four, maybe five, somewhere around there. The Smashing Pumpkins, the, the, the Beastie Boys were on this one. And Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds were on it. And he came out and was completely annihilated, drunk, piss drunk. And he, I thought he was trying to like pretend he was Jim Morrison of the doors the whole time because he was drunk. Now that's his gimmick. He tries to sound like Jim Morrison of the doors and he sucks. And I'm sorry if there's any Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds fans. I think he's terrible. Well, you enjoy that one. But I'll I just like go over the song. The Red Right Hand song is <laughs> sinister. It's it's pretty good. Uh, it's terrible. <laughs> it falls throughout the entire uh, series. I'm not a huge Nick Cave fan. Okay, Ron, you're, you're like the, the red deciding vote right here. What do you so, think? And I, and I like the way they use it in the movie. So, um, sorry, I'm going to go with Jay on this one. <laughs> do you... <laughs> There's a good cover a version of Don't Fear the Reaper fear the that's Reaper. in the Billy City scene early in the, when he sneaks in the bedroom, too. That's like the. <laughs> no, in this case, in it was, this case, it, was it works. Yeah, it was like Reaper the melodramatic version versus the. <laughs> yeah. the it doesn't have you know who else is on the soundtrack? Which makes it a different thing. Freaking Moby. Yeah, yeah. Moby. Ugh. <laughs> 
Moby. Remember that? Nothing says the late 90s like Moby, right? So <laughs> He's all over the Bourne movies, too, though, so I can't really knock it because I do dig that Bourne tune. But uh, anyway, so. Well, guys, we're at the point of the I'm podcast, obviously. Popcorn. We're just having I good final thoughts. I liked it back ratings, then. So I've, I've watched it several times. Screen, I liked it now. I haven't watched it probably in about a good five years or so that I forgot who the killers were when I watched it again for this. So it was really cool to, and fun to watch the whole thing come down because I kept trying to think about who ended up doing it. And my wife told oh, cool. me it was the boyfriend right away. And I'm like, no, I don't think it was this one. <laughs> I'm definitely going to go large popcorn. I wasn't a big fan of it when it came out. Um, I, I, I watched it and I was like, oh, that's okay. I like that Nick Cave song, uh, which I knew from the X-Files soundtrack, uh, Songs in the Key of X, the X-Files album, because I'm a friggin' <laughs> Yes, that's the television show. Um, that, but, that's the television yeah, show, it, right? Not, not uh, one of those on, bad movies. This like is the first time I've watched it probably since the 90s. <laughs> um, and I found myself really enjoying it. I, it, I love the opening... Uh, seen with Drew Barrymore. I love the uh, doggy door kill. Um, and I really like uh, how Marco Beltrami stole big chunks of like the Psycho soundtrack and and the John Car- uh, John Carpenter soundtrack for Halloween and, and kind of incorporated <laughs> into the the music that was already in the movie. So uh, yeah, definitely large popcorn uh, and definitely it was a nice trip down uh 1996 memory lane. There is a bit of nostalgia with this for me because of when I saw it again, that, you know, that formative time right there at the end of high school, first to college, I had fallen out of love with slasher movies, but then this one reignited it for me again. Cause I really dug it at the time. I wasn't like over the moon about it, but I thought, man, this is really smart and it's fun. And, it became the template for how things were going to go for a long time in film. I didn't see that at the time that it was going to happen, but it's hard to not know that now. And it had been a while since I watched it again, but I find myself even knowing the plot twist of it. I don't think I could ever forget it. It's still fun to watch and, and see it unfold because I think the performances work. I think the script's tight and I think it's, it may be the best thing Craven ever directed. I'm gonna I'm gonna make some people mad with that, but I I really think it may be his best effort. I it's it's a smart little fun film, and it's not perfect by any means, but it's not meant to be. It's the modern version of what's already been, but it, or it was the modern version at the time. It's not anymore. It's 20 years old, but it still works to be that old and to be a whodunit that once it's spoiled, you know, you can never put that cat back in the bag, but I still think it works. So I'm a large popcorn too. I think that's three for three on this one. Um, I remember though, after this started making a lot of money, I was hip enough to realize that hey, there's going to be a sequel. I don't care if they set it up or not. There's going to be a sequel. And sure enough, they got one out fast. And we'll talk about that next time, but I have distinct memories of scream Two and going to see it in theaters and stuff. So lots more fun to uh, get into as we go. And I'm sad to say, Brian, you're going to hear that Nick cave song a lot more. So, um, 
Just prepare yourselves. So anyway, well, folks, thanks for joining us in this latest edition of Filmstrip. Of course, you can find all of our old episodes on the iTunes feed and also on our website, continuousplaypodcast.com slash movies. Hook up with us on Facebook, follow us on social media, Twitter and such, and let us know what you think of the show. We appreciate the support. Until next time, for Brian and Ron, I'm Jay. Thanks for listening to Scream on Filmstrip. Thank you for listening to Filmstrip. You can find more episodes on our website, continuousplaypodcast.com forward slash movies. Please leave us a positive review on iTunes and link up with us on Facebook. The Filmstrip theme music is produced and performed by Frozen Lake 121.